0: Good morning everybody. Good morning. Good Good to see you this morning Um, and a early happy Thanksgiving and we are um, not on purpose but we are concluding our anxiety series right before Thanksgiving (laughs) and I know many of you the holidays can be a challenging time and our hope through this series is that we as a body of Christ as local extension of the body of Christ and us as individuals can grow in our peace we can exchange our anxiety for God's peace. And uh, the hope is that we don't conclude the discussion and the um, investigation of this topic of anxiety today. We, we want to continue on and growing in our knowledge and application of the peace of God. So we've got two ways for you to do that if you want to take some next steps. Tonight, we are hosting a panel on the topic of anxiety and the peace of God. It'll be here during the 6.30 service, or you could take a look uh, on Facebook. You can log in through Facebook Live. We have Pastor and Licensed Counselor Dean Siley. We have Founding Pastor Rick Duncan. We have Dr. Minnie Strausser, a pediatrician, and then Dr. Walt Broadbent, a practicing uh, licensed practitioner of a uh, counselor and um, therapist. So we'd love for you to come. You can put some questions. If you already got some questions, you can put them on the prayer card, put them in the offering plates. We can have those beforehand. You can reach out to us through our social media accounts, or you could show up tonight, ask questions question in person. We would love for you to come. Second opportunity you could take is Dr. Walt is providing a two-week study on anxiety and the peace of God, December 5th and 12th. And you could sign up on your response card and uh, get you um, connected that way. You know, we're going to address a lot of questions tonight, but there's one question that we have gotten asked constantly throughout this series. And I know that many of you aren't able to make it tonight, but I did want to f- kind of answer and frame up this question for everyone here, because I think it's that important. It's on the question about anxiety and medication. Uh, Ten years ago, our elders created a position paper called Prescription Medications and the Care, Mentorship, and Biblical Counseling Process at CVC. That is on our blog right now. So if you want to see our official statement, it's there. But I do want to kind of frame up a way of thinking about medication and anxiety, knowing that statistics tell us one in four women and one in six Americans take some type of psychiatric drug. You know, I think a helpful corollary, a helpful analogy of thinking about anxiety and medication is kind of looking at the uh, diabetes and medication. I think there's an analogy that can be bridged between the two. Now there's type 1 diabetes. That is an illness where someone's immune system attacks certain cells in their pancreas and they're unable to make and process insulin. So in order for them to be healthy, they must take insulin for the rest of their lives. That's just kind of what, what they have to do. That's type 1 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes is through various factors, both genetic and personal practice. Their bodies have been unable to efficiently use the the sugars in their blood. So what that means, type 2 diabetics have to go on medication, but the hope is that they, they establish patterns in their life so that they can control their blood sugars and they don't have to take medication for their entire life. I think there's an analogy that can be made between anxiety and medication and diabetes medication. I think there are some people that have type one anxiety that for whatever reason, the biochemistry in their minds, they will need medication for their life in order to be healthy. But once they have that medication, they're able to live in the way that God designed. I think there are the other type, there's like type two anxiety. I think this is the majority of people that there may be seasons of their life that they do need to take medication in order to get them to a place to establish personal and spiritual rhythms with the hope of going off of that medication. So I think that's a, when we think about medication, we're not anti-medication here, but we want to see it in, a, in, a, in its full expression based on the individual and where they're at in their life. So that's kind of an important framework. I wanted to frame up a little bit, knowing that many of you won't, aren't going to be able to make it tonight, okay? So if you have any questions, even during this message, you can reach out through social media, write on your prayer card, and we'll answer those, okay? Now let me officially start my message, all right? <laughs> Here's my intro. So we're concluding this four-week series on anxiety. We're talking about God. And his peace is the one path to peace. It is humbling ourselves under his mighty hand that's the source of peace. That when our trust in him increases, our, our anxiety decreases. But I think that many of us, maybe even the majority of us here, aren't buying it. <laughs> I think, because I know I've wrestled with this in the past, that we can see God, that he is the piece of the puzzle. Okay, you know, you have anxiety about death or anxiety about um, salvation. That that God, through Christ, can deal with those concerns and anxieties. But we have all these other pieces of the puzzle that go unanswered. You might think, Joshua, I'm not really concerned about my eternal destination. I feel like God's got it under control, but I, I I got work anxiety with my boss, right? I got family anxiety with my sister. I got physical, uh, anxiety about physical issues going on in my life. So I think that many of us see God as a piece to the puzzle rather than the backdrop that we, the box that we see all the puzzles fit together. So my, uh, My hope, my challenge, my goal this morning is to convince you of one thing. That in seasons of anxiety, all of us, every one of us have one choice to make. Either we trust in a powerless idol or we trust in the all-powerful God. One choice, fork in the road, trust in a powerless idol or trust in the all-powerful powerful God. And we're going to look at the Old Testament book of Isaiah as an example of what the nation of Israel, how they responded to a, series, uh, a, a season of great anxiety and, and chaos in their, in their life. Let me pray, and then we'll go into the text. Heavenly Father, you are so, so good. You are so good to us. Well, you don't leave us to our own devices, but you guide us and carry us along by your Son. We thank you, Lord. We thank you that you are the God of peace. As we look at your word this morning, would you, your Holy Spirit, just give us fresh insight to how we can understand and apply uh, what we're learning and live in a way that we are freed from anxiety. We experience your peace in order to try hard things for you in love and radical ways through your son, Jesus. So that's our prayer. Uh, Do what only you can do, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look at the Old Testament book of Isaiah. We're going to look at chapters 39, 40, 41, and 42. Okay, we're not going to go every, every verse, but we're going to look thematically at this, um, at this chunk of, of Scripture. We'll start in chapter 39. See, Isaiah was written by the prophet Isaiah, who was a prophet to the nation of Israel in many different um, important Uh, historical scenes in the nation of Israel's life. One of them was during the reign of King Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a good king. He was one of the rare good kings, but he made a major mistake. There was an envoy from the, the faraway place called Babylon, and they came in, and he invited this envoy in, and he showed them All that the nation of Israel had, all their gold, all their military paraphernalia, all that they owned. And he showed them everything, not knowing that these Babylonians were on a scouting mission to come one day and take everything that Israel had. Look at me, chapter 39, verse 5. Then, so after this envoy left, then Isaiah said, to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers had stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. So the backdrop of this next section of the book of Isaiah is impending destruction. It's interesting. Uh, scholars are in disagreement about the start of chapter 40. Some scholars say this is before the destruction that Babylon brought. Other scholars say, no, 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 this is after, and they're actually going back to the nation. And then the third group says, well, this is kind of in the midst. What that tells us this morning is no matter if you are entering into a season of disruption and chaos, you're in a season of disruption and chaos, or you're coming out of a season of disruption and chaos, this section of the Bible is for you and for me. Okay? So let's look at that. Um, start, uh, Isaiah chapter 40. So this is, the f- this is in the midst of chaos, God telling the nation of Israel, reminding them, even though they're either in the midst of, going into, coming out of chaos... Reminding them that God, of who God truly is. Okay, chapter 40, starting in verse nine. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. And his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and you know, are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burn offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Now here's God Reminding his people in the midst of the chaos that I am a, my, my power never ends. My knowledge is complete and my justice is perfect. I am the one true God. There is none beside me, none before me. This is who I am. I'm reminding you of this nation of Israel. But I know, and you know, there's a difference between knowing this truth and having it embed in our hearts. You see, during this season of the nation of Israel, idolatry was a major temptation. And it would look like this. Every nation around Israel had their own special idols. And every aspect of life had some idol. So there would be an, uh, an idol or a god for the river, a god for fertility, a god for the moon, a god for crops, a god for livestock. As many as you can imagine. And what would happen in the nation of Israel when their livestock would get a disease or that their crops would fail or that the rivers would run dry, they would be tempted to look at other nations and take their idols. It would be like this. Man, those Babylonians, their crops are killing it this year and ours aren't. Maybe I'll go and find a little Marduk statue and smuggle it into my house and kind of hedge my bets. Yes, God is the great... Almighty God, but maybe Marduk can come and help. It would be like that. And that was a constant temptation in the life and the nation of Israel. And God knew this. See, going into seasons of frustration, uh, disruption, chaos, anxiety, we are tempted to cling on to things other than God. And God knows this. So here he reminds the nation of Israel who he is, but then he highlights and asks them a question. He says, these idols... What can an idol do for you? What, what can an idol do for you? And we see in the next few chapters, God laying out this semi-sarcastic argument of what an idol can do. Look with me, uh, chapter 40, verse 18. So here, here's what an idol can do. or, or the, Here's the, uh, the essence of an idol. Starting in verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it. And a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. So he's saying, all right, so you, you got to make, you got a, a craftsman has got to go and find some stone or find something to make this form. And then he hands it over to a goldsmith. And a goldsmith takes gold and pounds gold around the outside. And because it's gold, you got to make a chain or somebody's going to steal it. So he goes and makes a chain and to chain it down. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. So if you're broke and you don't have any gold you go and find a really solid piece of wood to put the idol on. And you got to make sure this wood has no knot or rot because if you put the idol on the wood and it rots, the idol will fall over. And we don't want our idols to do that. Chapter 41, verse five. The coastlands have seen and are afraid The ends of the earth tremble, they draw near and come. So here are uh, these outside uh, nations hearing about the coming of the Lord and his rising. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. He who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. So here, when, when distress comes with those who trust in idols, their response is, ooh, some of the gold's kind of fallen off. We better patch this thing up. Or, oh, you know, I'm going to nail some more nails down into the wood to make sure this idol doesn't fall over because, you know, this idol, this is what I'm trusting and I got to take care of this idol. Chapter 41, starting in verse 21. Here, here uh, the, the Lord like really lays on the sarcasm. He says, set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs says the king of Jacob. Br- let them bring them. Tell us what is to happen. So come on, roll in your idols. Let's kind of have a mono a discussion. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us, declare to us things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. So it's like, tell us the future. Or tell us the past, your choice. Or do good or do harm. Do anything that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. You know, I think it's easy for us in the West to kind of look in this and kind of like roll our eyes, scoff, right? Trusting in an idol. That just seems so naive, so unscientific, so foolish. I remember I spent some time in India at a orphanage and a Bible school. And in the evenings, we would go out and um, see the sights of the town and have dinner at one of the carts that were out on the streets. And everywhere, everywhere, there were idols there were these golden ziggurats with hundreds of little faces that symbolized different idols. You'd walk down the street corner or the square. There are idols everywhere. And what was most perplexing to me is we would sit down and eat at one of the street vendors. And virtually every street vendor had a little um, a statue of a, of a monkey. And then in the morning, right when they set up their shop, they would put a little slice of orange or a little cookie next to the monkey. And it would just sit there all day and they'd work and they'd do their thing. And then when they would clean up for the day, they'd take the cookie and the orange, throw it away, take their idol, and go home. And the next day they'd do all the same thing. So uh, one day we, were, we, we noticed that, like, what's the deal with the orange slice? And we finally found one of those sh- um, restaurant workers that could speak some English. And we asked him, I go, you know, what's the deal with the orange slice, the little cookie? They go, well, actually, that is a God that helps our business. So we provide an offering to this God, and in return, that God helps our business. So you know, on the outside, I was like, okay. And the inside, I'm like, give me a break, bro. Like, you, you throw the orange away. Like, he's not snacking on the orange it's, 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 so in my mind, I'm thinking, this is so ridiculous. Trusting in an idol is ridiculous. And we in the West do it all the time. Our idols look a little different. You see, in the East, they are communal. They have a supernatural worldview. So they see gods and objects and relationships as primary. So their temptation is create an idol out there. We're individualistic. It's me, I'm an individual, I am my own self. So our idols are all about us. We create idols around ourselves, around our appearance, our status, our power, our reputation, our bank account, our house, our family, and even our morality. We are just as idolatrous are tempted to idolatry as the nation of Israel. It's just harder for us to see. See, I had a, a friend of mine, he is in, uh, I'm in a training process for the uh, campus launch in about 300 days. And one of the guys in there with me, he's a church planter in the near west side of Cleveland. His name's Gunger Diwali, and he goes by Abraham. He would, grew up in a refugee camp. He's. he's um, it's pretty cool. So he, him and his wife got saved in a refugee camp. He's Bhutanese. He was, got saved in a refugee camp in uh, Nepal and they got to choose their name. So he chose Abraham and she co- chose Sarah. I was like, that's pretty cool. Well, I, I asked, I asked uh, Abraham Friday, hey, what, what was strange when you came here? What was one of the strange things that you experienced? He was like, you know, I would see people and they would have a phone that, that they would take it to a store and then take money and they would give them the phone and the money and then they would get another phone that looked exactly the same thing. Like it was the same phone. And he goes, and I I knew people who did not even have a phone. That was very strange to me. I'm like, Abraham, you got a point, man. (laughs) You see, it's so easy for us to see other people's idols. It's so hard for us to see our own. What I'd like to do in the next few minutes is go through four categories that our idols fall under here in North America. These are general categories. But before we do that, I wanna ask the question, what is an idol? We know an idol is not merely a, a, a little carving or a little statue. What is an idol? Pastor Tim Keller, he's a pastor in New York City, says this from his book, Counterfeit Gods. It is, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And he goes on to say, a counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. So let's go through these four categories of power, approval, comfort, and control and assess our own idols because we are all tempted in some way to set up some type of idol and trust in a powerless idol rather than the all-powerful God. And you know the way we can most pinpoint where our idols are? It is that they are the, lo- the greatest source of our fear and anxiety. Just like in the nation of Israel, when disaster comes, they would go to this idol and make sure the gold's all polished and the nails are all secure. Same with us. So When we experience seasons of anxiety, our natural inclination, if we don't go to God, is we go to these idols. Okay? So let's look at these four categories. First is Power. Power. That's success. It's winning. Influence. Your greatest nightmare is humiliation. People around you often feel used at your worst, and your problem emotion is anger. So you're probably an overachiever, a type three on the Enneagram. You succeed, you win, you do well. But when you are not at the top of your heap, you feel unworthy, You feel anxious and you can't sleep at night. When you aren't doing well, falling asleep is difficult because you trust in power to save you. Idol two, approval. This includes affirmation or love or relationships. Your greatest nightmare is rejection. People around you often feel smothered and your problem emotion is cowardice. See, you're a person who everyone loves to see walk down the hall. You are kind and sweet and caring. You have a wonderful reputation. You will do everything possible to be loved and affirmed. You're bubbly, you're attractive, but you have an incredible anxiety about being rejected. And this causes you to steer away from hard conversations, from sharing the gospel or challenging people in areas of life, of their life. Is this you? All right, category number three, comfort. Comfort, this includes privacy, lack of stress, freedom. Your greatest nightmare is stress, it's demands. People around you often feel neglected and your problem emotion is boredom, right? You just want to be left alone. You don't want to have burdens or responsibilities. You aren't willing to lead or you're not willing to step out in faith. But because comfort is your path to the good life, you resist stepping into the life that God has for you and you're bored. And boredom, in isolation, or a recipe for anxiety. Item number four is control. Self-discipline, certainty, standards. Your greatest nightmare is uncertainty. People around you often feel condemned and your problem emotion is worry. You feel like if you can just have the best system, research the right process, plan ahead just enough, then you will be able to avoid uncertainty. Sometimes you can condemn people for not being at the place you are, but underneath it all, you have a gnawing sense of worry and anxiety, wondering how long I can keep this thing up. Which is it for you? Is it power? Is it approval? Is it comfort? Is it control? Is it a, is it a mixture of two? For me, it's power. I'm afraid of looking bad. I'm afraid of being embarrassed. And I think how that idol has played out in my life is it has minimized my boldness with the gospel for those who are close to me or those who I respect. That's my temptation. Maybe a splash of comfort because sometimes I do want to be left alone. (laughs) Which one, where do you find yourself? Which resonates with you? See, our idols require something from us. They require everything. From us, they require our time, our money, our effort, our lives, and in return, we get nothing. They fail us every time. But the message of the gospel is that is not that God wants something from us. The message of the gospel is that God has done something for us. He has given us his son, Jesus Christ, his death on the cross and his resurrection. So that by grace through faith, if we trust in Jesus, then our sins are forgiven. We don't have to follow along any type of ritual. We don't have to do any type of activities rather than trust in God. But Once we do have faith, he activates our hearts and our lives so that our lives become beautiful expressions of his love and his peace in the world. And we see that in chapter 41, verse 8 and verse 10, I feel like he like pushes down all these idols of the West. He almost looks ahead 2,500 years and says, all these Westerners, I'm going to cut at the core of their idols. This is what he says. Chapter 41, starting in verse eight. It says, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. If you're looking for power, what greater power do you have than being called a friend of the Almighty God? Verse nine, You whom I took from the ends of the earth, and called from its farthest, farthest corners, saying to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and will not cast you off. Look, if you're looking for affirmation and approval, you have unending approval because God has chosen you to be in His family. And no matter what, He has promised never to cast you away. Verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. If you're looking for comfort and lack of stress, God says, I'm here. I am here. I will help you. Don't be dismayed. Don't be discouraged. I am here. In verse 10, I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Look, if you're looking for control, God will not give you control but he gives you a promise that he will strengthen you, he will help you, he will uphold you. See, an idol will always leave us anxious because it requires so much of us, but God provides us true peace. Look, if you are entering into, coming out of, or in the midst of a season of anxiety, you do have one choice to make. Will you trust in a powerless idol that will always leave you and always forsake you? Or will you trust in the all-powerful God who says, fear not, I will be with you? We have one choice to make. You know, we have something that ancient Israel did not have. You see, in ancient Israel, they were looking ahead to the promises of God. They were given these promises and they were looking expectantly for when some of these promises will be fulfilled. We have the benefit of looking back to the fulfilled promises of God. We see in chapter 42, the first four verses, uh, God gives Israel a promise that one day someone will come and restore all things. He will put right what is wrong in the world. So they're looking ahead. One day this will come. But Isaiah 42, that prophecy was fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. And we see that same prophecy in Matthew's 12 saying this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So we can look back to what God has already done in the offer of salvation and forgiveness through his son. So I want to uh, conclude this message with reading those fulfilled promises that God has given us out of Isaiah 42. It says, behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He already has in the spiritual realm. Satan has been defeated and we're, we're waiting for the full application of his reign when he comes again. And he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He is tender, he is delicate, He's kind. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint and be discouraged. He will not be discouraged when you fail constantly. He won't. Till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands. Those who don't know Christ wait for his law. Look, when we experience the peace of God, we can turn to a powerless idol or an all-powerful God. I would encourage you. The proof, the evidence is His Son, Jesus Christ, His gift. And you trust in Christ and all the peace of God is offered and extended to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your faithfulness, your kindness, your love, your fulfilled promises, your constant care, even when we turn back to our idols. Lord, would you Call our hearts. Would you pull out the rotten places in our hearts, repair them, and heal them so that we can live a life that you designed, a life of peace in the midst of, not the absence of chaos. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. We, 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 we all say all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.